There we go. Um, a couple of things we've mentioned about God's decree is we're going through chapter 3 of the London Baptist Confession. Is that when we consider God's decree, we're considering kind of the reason why everything exists, okay? The question that comes into every philosopher's mind at some point, and any thinking person's mind at some point, as we look around at the world that is, as we look into our own hearts, and we come to the conclusion that this world is real and we really exist, the question is, why is there something? Why is there a universe? Why is there a world that was made? Now, the decree of God that we're considering somewhat straddles both chapter 2 and chapters 4 and 5 of the Confession because it's God's decree that causes all things to come into existence. Or it's the the thing, that's not a proper way of looking at it, but it is God's decree that all things came into being by. And as we considered last week, God's decree is God's own counsel okay, of His eternal will. And so in a way that's incomprehensible to me, and I'm barely apprehending some of the language this week, when we consider God's decree as it's, it's a part of God's own will and counsel, we can say that God's decree, because it's part of God, is immutable, like God is. It's impassable. That means that there's nothing that can come against God's will in His person and cause Him to do something, to act on Him from the outside and make Him to do something Contrary, okay? That's why we use language like God didn't look down the corridors of history and see who would believe on him and then he chose them because that would make God's will contingent upon a creature and changing him. It is an omniscient decree because it's in God and it's holy. (coughs) It's good and right. God's decree reflects all of these attributes of God. But the thing I want to end on in this introduction is that God's decree is also incomprehensible, okay? Just as God is incomprehensible, His will is incomprehensible to man. That does not mean, as Joey so well put it, that we can't know something of God's decree, but we can't comprehend it. We can't wrap our arms around it and say, I I understand everything that there is to know about this, okay? That's where we get into trouble. And I, in particular, want to highlight that because I'm going to be going through paragraphs 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 today, and there's a lot to cover here. I'm happy to come back to it, but we're going to be giving a somewhat brief overview of this section of the confession. And what it deals with is the decree of God in particular towards those, towards the salvation of those who come to know Jesus Christ, okay? That's what we're dealing with today. And notice that That's the focus of God's decree, okay? God created the world primarily so that he could save a people out of the world for his son, Jesus Christ. So, notice, paragraph 3. We're not going to read these all at once because I think we'd lose our place. And so, I'm going to read paragraph by paragraph. And I want us to notice in paragraph 3 some of the major attributes of God's decree of predestination. And I am very indebted to Sam Waldron for the outline that he has. So, first notice the the selectivity or the distinguishing selectivity of God's decree that, that God, when He chose to save some, 
He distinguished. He selected some out of the world. Paragraph 3, by the decree of God for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of His glorious grace, others being left to act in their own condemnation to the praise of His glorious justice. Okay, So we see here that some men and angels are predestined or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Now, as we consider God, and we've already considered that there's nothing that I can do to twist God's arm or to make Him want to save me. Not only do I not have the ability to do that because of my own sinfulness, everything that is in me because of the fall is repulsive to God. There's nothing in me that could earn or or make God save me. And so when we consider this text and understand the idea that God, for the manifestation of His own glory, chose to save some, we might think it's arbitrary in some way. And to our human minds, it might seem that way. But we have to realize that in Scripture, God has a very clear motivation for saving. First is His own glory that He would manifest it. Now, I don't know if you've heard the language. Me and Brother Caleb have been talking about it recently. That the creation is the theater of God's glory. Are you familiar with that kind of terminology? Right? That is, God, He's glorified. But notice the language of the confession. God doesn't receive more glory because of His creation. Because He can't. He's the perfectly glorified and blessed one. But through the theater of God's creation, it manifests God's glory. God is pleased to to want to show His glory. Okay, But the second motivation is God's love for us. We see this in Ephesians chapter 1, in verses 5 through 6. And this is a wonderful passage for understanding the decree of God as regards predestination in particular. Ephesians chapter 1. I'll read from verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His own will, to the praise of His glorious grace, in which He has blessed us in the Beloved. The God truly, in love, predestined us. It's God's love for His people that He chose to set upon us that is the motivation for, in time, choosing some of us out of the world. Okay? But it's God's decree, His love being shown in this world, and that love, that His glory is most manifest in His people through the love that He shows to us, undeserving sinners. Right? And then we'll turn to Romans chapter 3 to see the motivation for God's salvation. It's for glory and to show His grace and also to show His, His justice. So we see this in Romans chapter 9 in particular. <coughs> Romans chapter 9. 
verses 22 through 23. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. In the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And so, we see here that God has chosen some, he has distinguished some, for salvation through Jesus Christ. Are, are there any other texts that come to mind as we think of that? That the reason we're saved is primarily rooted in the electing mercy of God. There are more. There are lots more. Sure. Yeah. So we could turn to the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ in John 17, can't we? To see that there, there's a distinguishing grace that God had in his person before the world began to save some. Okay? And notice in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Okay? So, there are a select people that God gave to Jesus Christ from the foundation of the world. Now, Christ also... It says in multiple places, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And I believe that's in John chapter 15. I'm just waiting for you guys to hit me with some more scripture here. Brother? Yes. Yes. So, we see in both of those passages the language that the Father had a certain people that by His decree He selected and He gave them to Jesus Christ. And this is often referred to as the covenant of redemption or the pactum salutis in Scripture. That in the Trinity, in the eternal counsel of the decree, there is agreement between the three persons of the Trinity that they would save a people. That they would save a people out of the world. Okay? I thought we were more stage cagey than this. (laughs) I think I just coined that term. So, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Notice, our condition is something that is not commendable to God. It's not pleasant to God. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us in verse 1, and we'll end on this and go to the next section. 
And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Okay? That means every single person without exception, except for Jesus Christ himself, lived in the world in what way? Dead in trespasses and sins. We walked in them. We followed the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. You understand what that means. While we necessarily wouldn't wear a t-shirt with an upside down pentagram on it, we were all Satanists, so to speak, before our conversion to God. We followed after Satan willingly. He bound us hand and feet and we went after him. And he says we all once lived that way. But then the reason for our salvation is seen in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been Saved. By grace you have been saved. Okay? Yeah, yeah, give me give me another one. Yes, a chosen race. That's right. <coughs> and so we could take a lot of text together, and we have limited time here, but the language of us being chosen by grace, the language of the covenant of redemption before the foundation of the world shows us most clearly that God did not choose some for salvation because we did anything. Because we couldn't do anything. All we could do is more deeply condemn ourselves, but God in His love chose a certain people for Himself. Okay? And... I want us to notice that there's an unchanging specificity in paragraph 4. Okay? There's this people that's cho- chosen out of the world, and that number does not change. Notice, these angels and men, thus predestinated and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designed, and that their number is so definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Yes. Please, please do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yes, and so the question I think first is where do we get the idea of elect angels before we get to the in Christ part of it, right? Where, where do we see that some angels are chosen by God? First Timothy 2.19, right, is, or 2 Timothy 2.19. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's not necessarily with that Jude, So Jude is a key text for this. Jude, in verse 4. Jude, 
Well, that's not right. Um, So we see in Jude, specifically in verse 5, that Jude writes, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept an eternal change of gloomy darkness until the judgment of that day. And there is a better text than that, brother. Um, and I would just say in regard to that one, my, my understanding would be that these unnecessary implications of that, these angels didn't fall outside of God. Yes. Yes. And, and there is specific language of, of chosen angels, and I am not bringing that to mind immediately. Um, I didn't have it in my notes, and that's part of the problem. But to answer your question more fully, right, that there are some angels that did not fall away, as best as I understand it, and there's a lot of scholarly work done to that that I haven't read over, okay, that we're saved from our sins by Jesus Christ. And the angels, you're right, in no sense were saved from their sins by Jesus Christ, but they, they were preserved in some sense by the meteor, mediatorship of Christ, is the idea, from not falling away. I don't. I, I honestly don't know. Yeah, I honestly don't know. Brother. The verse you're looking for is 1 Timothy 5.21. Oh, yes. Yeah, read it, brother. Um, I'll just back up to the beginning. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an owner except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear in the presence of God and, and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from personal Yeah, yeah. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so in that text, we, we have the very clear language of Paul that there are elect angels. Okay, that there are some angels that were chosen. And again, the idea is there are some that have fallen away, but God chose to retain some of those heavenly authorities by his own grace and power. And I wish I could do more for that answer. Brother uh, Barcellus has written a very good, from what I understand, essay, and only a few people have it. Because uh, I don't think it's been published yet. Okay, we were having lunch with David Charles, or I was the other day. And he texts Richard Barcellus like these. I don't know. I don't understand it. He texts me. He's like, "Do you have that essay?" And he's like, "Yeah, it's on my desktop." So, but anyway, so I'm sorry that I can't answer that more completely. But there's a sense in which the angels themselves are are preserved in Christ, even though they haven't been saved from sin. They're preserved in Christ. Okay, as he is the head, as Brother Caleb brought up, of all authority and power. Okay, so. We, we have this idea of limited atonement being brought up in paragraph 4, don't we? That the number of the angels and the saints will not be diminished or increased. Okay, That in God's decree, he chose a very specific group of people to be saved. And that makes their salvation and our salvation certain. Okay, Because if we consider our condition and who we were, 
dead in our trespasses and sins. There had to be a work of God that comes into our hearts that regenerates us and makes us new. And God had to choose that. Now, there's several texts that we could speak concerning this. Um, John 13, 18. Jesus says on the, the night before he was betrayed, says, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats with me this bread has lifted up his heel against me. Okay, And like we have read, Jesus Christ uses several images to show that there are a certain amount of people or a certain select group of people that are his. He uses the language of sheep. The sheep hear my voice, right? You do not know me because you are not of my sheep. Christ also uses the language of a bride, right? He came to this earth to save his bride and to be united to them. And that that seems to indicate a select group of people. And to me, a, a powerful text, if we could just think about it for a moment, is Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. That Christ takes away any probability of people being saved. That Christ, when he came to this earth, came to save completely and fully a certain group of people. And this comes from his name. Notice, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for what? He will save his people from their sins. But as we consider the doctrine of limited atonement or the specificity, we have to realize that one of the strongest arguments I think is given historically and theologically is that there is no division in the Godhead among who will be saved. What do I mean by that? If we are going to say that the Holy Spirit regenerates some, right? But Jesus Christ died for all, and the Father only elected some, or the Father elected all, we're necessarily introducing into the divine trinity an opposing will going on here. It's as if the Holy Spirit only wants to save some, but the Father wants to save all, or vice versa. But we can't say that. God in heaven has one will. The trinity has one will. All that the Father elects... The Son dies to save. All that the Son dies to save, the Holy Spirit comes and applies that salvation to their heart in time. Okay? This doctrine is is Trinitarian in its outlook. And again, we have to keep moving for time's sake. But this doctrine teaches us that there are an unchangeable amount and number of people. But then we move on and... Verses, or verses, paragraphs 5 and 6 to the outworking of that decree. Those of mankind that are predestinated to life, God before the foundation of the world was laid according to his own eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without there being anything in the creature as a condition or cause motivating them thereunto. Okay? And as we consider that, we've already been in Ephesians. 
It tells us just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world in verse 4 in chapter 1, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. What an amazing text that God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And the end of that is that we will be holy without blame before Him in love. Notice verse 9. Having made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure that He purposed in Himself. And then in Romans chapter 9, for time's sake, in verse 13... And again, this is just trying to attempt to show that in the outworking of this decree, there was nothing in the creature that he foresaw in us that caused him to do it. Romans 9.13, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I have mercy compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. The Apostle Paul couldn't have picked any clearer language to demonstrate this fact. That there's nothing seen in me or you you that caused God to choose us. Because it's not of him that wills. It's not of him that runs. It is purely on God that shows mercy. Okay? And then in Paragraph 6, we have the execution of election, or the means of us being regenerate in time. It says, as God has appointed the elect unto glory, so he hath by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto, wherefore they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ are effectually called unto faith in Christ by His Spirit, working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by His power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ or effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, or saved, but the elect only. And so, this is merely saying that in a moment of time, that election of God that He has predestinated before the foundation of the world became a reality in our lives. Right? At the moment of regeneration, this takes place by God. And notice that he says that all the means are appointed by God as well as the ends. And this should, this should erase any hyper-Calvinist thoughts that we have in our head that, well, if I'm elect, I'm elect, and I, so therefore I don't have to go to God, I don't have to repent. He has to give me faith and repentance, so I'm going to sit back passively. We're not given to know that. That is in the secret council of his decree. But he has ordained all the means. And think about, I'm sure that you probably know some people in your life that people were praying for years over their salvation. And they finally came to faith in Jesus Christ. What comes to my mind is Augustine. um, That his mother prayed for him for years and years for him to come out of his vain philosophy and to repent of his sins and come to Christ. And it finally took place, right? God uses the means of prayer to accomplish His designed ends. He ordained that woman to pray that the end, the salvation of Augustine's soul would take place. He ordained for you the time that you heard the Gospel preached. He ordained that that man or woman who gave you the Gospel would have the boldness in their heart to share it with you. 
He ordained that day that your ears would be open and your heart would be filled with the Holy Spirit that you would respond to it. And more than that, if that's true, He ordains the end of salvation for us as well, that He will preserve us and keep us all the days of our life until we enter glory. Until we enter glory. Now, do we have any questions so far? About effectual calling? Yes, brother. Well, first, it's important that we would guard the doctrine of God, right? It's the thing that we usually don't think of in our minds, okay? That it's important for us to know that the number does not change because that would necessitate that there was something in God's decree that he did not foreordain whatsoever comes to pass, that there was something left to absolute probability that was outside of God's will, and therefore God didn't know it, okay? Because we have to remember that God knows everything that comes to pass because he decreed it, not because he foresaw something that was outside of himself, okay? But I think it's also important for us to realize that, partly for our assurance, right? That if I can choose to be in Christ outside of his decree and outside of his prevenient, gracious working in my life, right? Then in my mind, my sinful mind says, well, then I can fall away from that. I'm in great fear of that, right? Um, And it's to give us assurance that God will save his people, right? It's not a probability, And as Pastor Kevin used to say, God's not in heaven twiddling his thumbs and anxiously wringing his hands, hoping that his people come to salvation in Jesus Christ. He has decreed exactly who will come to salvation, and he knows it. Yes. And that's why I love Matthew 121. His name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. There, there's not any probability mixed into that formula. Because if there was probability, depending on any of our grace, we know that it wouldn't happen. I know I wouldn't come to salvation in Jesus Christ if it had anything to do with me, Right? The the wonderful thing about this doctrine is it puts it all in God's hand that he must show grace to sinners. He must. There's no other way around it. Okay? And this happens in due season. Um, It happens in due season. So God, by his grace, calls people in his own time that he is set down. He is set down. And... As we consider these things, part of the reason we have taken this trajectory in teaching God's decree that last week we went through those seven areas that God is sovereign over, right? He's sovereign over the the free acts of men, over chance occurrences, over the nations, over political affairs, right? Over sin itself. The reason we did that is to show that God is sovereign out of all these things, but and we cannot retain, well, except for salvation, He's not sovereign over that. 
These things are meant to build towards this great doctrine. Okay? So, the last point that I have here is in paragraph 7, the prudent handling of this sacred doctrine. And I love that the writers of the Confession put this in here. The doctrine of the high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. That men attending the will of God revealed in His Word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation. That is their effectual calling. Okay, God regenerating us. Be assured of their eternal election. And so shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God and humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all who sincerely, to all that sincerely obey the gospel. So the first thing that we have here is really a charge from the confession that we have to handle this doctrine with care and prudence. Okay? Because it can be badly done. How, how have people used this doctrine without care? In your experience. That's right. Diminish personal responsibility. Right? So, not being careful about all the doctrines we've talked about. The doctrines of second causes. Right? And man's responsibility even though God decrees all things. Right? Our freedom according to our own nature. Diminishing those things and merely focusing on election has caused some to preach this doctrine in such a way that uh, we don't have to do anything at all and we must passively wait for God to work. And this is what we would call hyper-Calvinism, which is a doctrine just as or more so devastating than Arminianism itself, right? It denies that God works through means and only ordains ends, Okay? doesn't matter if you pray, doesn't matter if you repent, doesn't matter any of these things, you will be saved. This is an imprudent and uncareful way of handling this doctrine. Any other ways that you think of? That's the primary one, I think. But. Yeah, oh yeah, no, that's, that's true. That's true. Some fall away, and so it couldn't impugn God's character in this. Um, yeah, that's absolutely right. And so the end of this, though, is getting to Caleb's question earlier, is that when we consider the certainty of our effectual calling, that we would be sure, assured of our eternal election. That assurance of salvation is connected with this doctrine. And we're talking about John MacArthur this week, and one of the wonderful things that John MacArthur has said is that if, if I could fall away from my faith, I would fall away from my faith. There's no doubt about that, but it's God's electing choice in me. If He chose me from nothing I ever did, outside of everything that I ever did, by His own grace and mercy, chose to save a sinner, then that means that nothing in me can cause Him to continue to Preserve me in faith. That His electing love and grace is continually with me. And if we believe in Christ at the moment of our salvation to be made regenerate and new in Him, believing in Christ is the mark of our eternal election to go to glory as well. Brother. We are. We're a somewhat eventual 
what's going on in this world. What's going on is the Father who's in the right and the Son and the Spirit. Mm-hmm. That's the core of it. Mm-hmm. And that's what this doctrine of God's decree is all about. Yes. And so it really humbles us to recognize I really am not the center of the universe. It's not really about me. It's about God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yes. And secondly, and lastly, that last um, semicolon. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. So toward God, the appropriate response to this doctrine is praise and reverence and admiration of God. And notice it said the matter of this doctrine. The things that we've considered, that God would choose us, again, to to say it over and over again, choose us, not because of anything in us, but only because of his own electing grace. That should cause nothing in our hearts but praise, reverence, and admiration to God. And towards ourselves, it should cause humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all who sincerely obey the gospel. So, these things are sometimes contrary. Of course they are. We're sinners, aren't, aren't they? In, in Calvinist churches, you don't see humility sometimes. You see uh, a prideful attitude because we have put pride in intellect or whatever it might be. But this doctrine considered says that I don't have anything of myself. It's all been given by God, and it should cause humility. But what else should it cause? What's the second thing it lists? Diligence. Isn't that interesting? Contrary to what is sometimes preached, that there should be a lack of diligence, or there can be a lack of diligence, because God elected me anyway, I don't have to be diligent. This should cause diligence, right? It's not a diligence that I can twist God's arm to do what, he, what I want him to do, right? Or that I could change him in some way to choose something he hasn't already chosen, but diligence to know that God has ordained the means and the ends. And if I apply myself to God's means, he's going to work out his decree in the way that he chooses in the best possible way, right? We can be diligent towards God because of this. And abundant consolation to those who believe the gospel. And um, I'm just going to read us a couple of texts, and then we'll... Take some questions if we have time and be done. Notice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll just go to each of these texts. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I was reading through this in my devotions this week, and the language of Paul giving assurance to his people is utterly astounding to me. Okay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And I want you to to see verse 4. It says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Right? That's the election of God. We know that He has chosen you. Why? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, or New King James says much assurance, right? Came with much assurance, confidence. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So we see that 
Paul, in some sense, knows their election because the Holy Spirit had worked assurance in their heart. Um, Romans chapter 11. And this text merely reminds us of the stark contrast that we have. It's either by grace or it's by work. Verses 5 through 6. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant that is of Jewish people, specifically in this context, chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Paul's argument destroys the the Arminian notion that faith is a smaller law that we have to keep in order to be saved. Okay? If it's by grace, it's not of works. And then the same chapter, notice in verse 33. As Paul in this chapter is talking about the Gentiles and the Jews coming to faith by God's providence and God's timing... He says what we should say with regard to the doctrine of election. Oh, the depth and the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Okay, so this doctrine should cause us to worship God because his judgments are good and true. And then finally, Luke 20.10. And you might, or 10.20 rather. You might recall this with the Disciples coming back, the 70 coming back, rejoicing because the demons were subject to them. And you might not read this text with election in mind, but I think that it clearly implies it if we read it with the correct eyes. But Christ tells them, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven, right? Your names are written in heaven before the foundation of the world. That's what we are to rejoice in. And again, what I'm trying to point us to is that there's a clear doxological application to this text. We're to rejoice in God because he's written our names in heaven. We didn't write our own names in heaven. We didn't cause him to write our names in heaven. He chose us by his grace and mercy. Do we have any questions? A couple minutes that we have. I know we've blown through a really hard doctrine in a very short time. Yes? Especially when Yeah. Because then the corollary is, well, why should husbands be loyal to their one wife? Mm. Like the parallel is Christ is loyal to the one that he is, has been set apart for him. So we should be faithful to our wives. Amen. And we see limited atonement, pictures of it, in, in the Old Testament as well, right? Now, all the sacrifices that we see in Israel, they were offered for a specific group of people at a specific time, right? The, the, the Jewish high priest would go into the temple and he had the 12 names of the sons of Israel and them alone, right? Written on his breastplate and on his shoulder pads. He atoned for a particular people. And the same thing is true in the new covenant. God, Jesus Christ, is praying for his people to receive salvation that God had elected them for, right? 
And again, this Trinitarian moment, we can't say that God the Father elected all people somehow, and then Jesus Christ only prays for a certain amount, or that God elected a certain people, and Jesus Christ prays for all, then we're saying that Jesus Christ's prayers are not effectual. That God doesn't answer them if all people come to salvation. We, this is really tied to a lot of doctrines, okay, that's, that's very important. And even though it's hard for us to understand, incomprehensible, we're to submit to it. And knowing, like Paul says in Romans chapter 9, who are you to answer back to God? God has the freedom to choose to save some and not save others. Okay? But it, we should rejoice in that fact. Any other questions? Okay, I'm going to pray for us. Father, we come before you. And Lord, uh, this, this doctrine... Uh, it really deserves many Lord's Days, but uh, to try to keep our promise to keep this study brief, um, we've done this. And I just pray that you would help us to be assured, God, through this doctrine of our salvation because it doesn't depend on us. I pray that you would help us to, to love you and to rejoice in you and to have, to have great peace in the fact that your love is what causes us to be saved and not our works. Lord, we love you. Be with us today in Christ's name. Amen.